Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real, and I want to give a special thanks to each of you who tune in each week to listen to various interviews and discussions of LDS topics that are important, hopefully both to me and to you. To keep this podcast alive, I need your support. Please consider becoming a premium subscriber today for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. Not only do you support the podcast and help it to continue on providing great interviews and weekly discussions to enrich both your gospel study and your faith transition, but also you get rewarded by getting a chance to listen to episodes before the general public. So please consider supporting Mormon Discussion Podcast today by visiting mormondiscussionpodcast.org and clicking the premium subscriber button or the donate button. And thank you to each of you for your support. God bless you, and may the Lord warm your shoulders. Now on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today we sit down with LDS author Jeff Olson, who writes about his near-death experience, who speaks to us about after his automobile accident and the loss of his wife and one of his children, his journey outside of his body, speaking to his deceased wife, seeing his deceased child and holding him. This is an episode you won't want to miss. So please open up your heart, open up your mind, and be prepared to listen to those things that come from the Spirit. And now on to our interview with Jeff Olson. Jeff Olson, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. Excellent. I'm glad to have you on. Today, we're sitting down with Jeff Olson, and we're going to talk about near-death experiences. I, uh, I had a listener to the program recommend you, Jeff, and uh, and wanted me to sit down and, and ask you some questions and get some thoughts and have you share at least some of your experience. I wonder if before we do that, though, if you might just share a brief intro about yourself so that my listeners can get a feel for you. Very good. Well, uh, my name is Jeff Olson. My full name is Jeffrey Olson. With an E-R-Y, and Olson is uh, O-L-S-E-N, in case you wanted to look me up or Google it. Um, I'm a local guy, local here to Utah. grew up in a small town called Charleston, which is near Midway, up in the, uh, the Heber Valley and in the beautiful Wasatch Mountains. So I was very lucky that way. Went to Utah State University on an athletic scholarship. Um, served an LDS mission in Scotland and... Uh, now work at uh, Thomas Arts as the executive director of creative strategy and uh, account services. So I'm a marketing person by uh, by trade, and yet my experiences and life experiences have also um, launched me into a best-selling author realm, a public speaker and lecturer realm, and I trust that's why we're talking this morning, Bill. You got it, yep. And I wonder if we could just kind of jump right into it. I wanted to ask you to share your story, which will be the background of all the questions that we ask kind of as a follow-up, but but maybe run us through uh, as, as little or as much as you'd like to share about about what happened, um, what you what you made of it, I guess, what um, what things you took away, and, and we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. <clears throat> well, the premise of um, my books and, and, and many other things have stemmed from an experience I had uh, 16 years ago now. And I was in a horrific automobile accident. Uh, our entire family, it was myself, my wife, and my two sons, who at the time, uh, my oldest was seven and the youngest was 14 months, just a toddler. But we were driving back from St. George, and I lost control of the vehicle, and uh, we rolled the car, uh, traveling at 75 miles an hour. And the car, unfortunately, rolled not off the road, but down the freeway. 
which propelled um, the car, they say, at least seven or eight times as far as uh, rolling the, the car goes. Now, I blacked out for most of that, and it took me many, many years to even talk about it. Um, it was devastating. As the vehicle came to a stop, the first thing I heard um, consciously was, was my oldest son, Spencer, seven years old, crying in the back seat. And as a father, my initial thought was, oh, thank goodness he's okay. I've got to get to him. Um, and that's when I realized I could not move. And uh, I actually couldn't see. I was having trouble breathing. And yet I was not acutely aware of my injuries. I just knew I wanted to get to my son. Now, what I didn't know at the time is that both of my legs had been crushed and shattered. Uh, the left leg uh, was eventually amputated above the knee. I had broken my back in two places. Um, my rib cage was crushed and collapsing. My lungs were collapsing. My right arm had nearly been torn off. Uh, not, there was no muscles through the rotator cuff even attaching it, and it was also uh, severely severed. And then the seat belt had come through me and had ruptured all my intestines. Um, I, was, I was a mess. I, I, I was not aware of that. I, I only knew that I wanted to get to my son. He was crying, and I couldn't move. And that's when the uh, the brutal reality hit me that no one else was crying. I, I couldn't hear Griffin, uh, my little uh, toddler boy, and I also knew in that moment that my um, that my wife was deceased, and they were they were killed instantly at the scene. I just imagining how hard that 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 moment has to be that it has to kind of set in, and, and like you say, you want to get to your your little one uh, who's who's obviously sees this as just a, a traumatic event and and I, my heart goes out to you. Yeah, it, it took years to even talk about it. I mean, like I say, I can discuss it now without just falling apart, uh, but it, it was the worst kind of hell um, for a man to ever be in. I mean, knowing that half the family was gone, here was my son crying, and I couldn't move, and I was driving the car. I'm the guilt and, uh, you know, the regret and the, the, the just, gosh, can't I take that one second back? Um, uh, what, what had happened, I, is, I had swerved to the right and overcorrected to the left and, and the vehicle uh, began to roll. And in – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, obviously, at some point, help has to come. I mean, how does that – how long does that take and, and what happens there? Yes, and, and I was unaware of that. We were sitting there quite um, – you know, I mean, I was I was devastated. I was losing consciousness. I couldn't breathe. And um, that's when I actually felt myself um, raise above the scene, if you will. Now, no, I had read, you know, near death experiences. I had read about, um, you know, tunnels of light and things like that. I didn't experience anything like that. I mean, here was this trauma of the accident. I'm absolutely um, horrified at, at the mayhem that's taken place. And then all of a sudden I became very calm and it felt as if I was surrounded by a, a bubble of light. That's the only way I can really describe it. Um, and in that poignant situation, um, I had a, a profound experience. Now, help did come. In, in fact, people stopped at the scene of the accident and, and I was unaware of any of this, but later was informed that actually a doctor stopped. And he was able to perform some things on me, um, was able to see to my son, Spencer. And being, you know, a medical professional was actually even able to see to the, the scene and, and, and the bodies of my deceased loved ones in a very professional and um, an appropriate manner, which I'm very, very grateful for. But I was unaware of any of that. 
I mean, you know, as he came to the scene, they, they saw the things. They rushed me to um, the little hospital there in Cedar City, as well as Spencer, my seven-year-old, who was not badly injured. He had uh, broken his wrist, and he had banged up his ribs pretty good, but he, was, he, he, he physically walked away from the scene. But uh, emotionally, you can imagine, he thought he was orphaned, the whole family was gone, and he never lost consciousness. He witnessed all of that. Sure. So that was rough on him. But they, they took us to Cedar City. They could immediately see there was nothing they could do for me, and so they life-flighted us both to, uh, to Salt Lake City. Now, I was unaware of any of that. In my, what I was experiencing is here I'd been surrounded by this, this bubble of light. Um, I was suddenly okay. You know, the pain was gone. I could breathe. I, I felt just fine beyond the trauma of what had happened. But physically, I felt fine. And I say that as if, you know, what, what had happened is I'd left the body. I was spiritual, but I felt very, very physical. And that's something that shocked me, actually, because as I stood in this light... My wife, who I knew was deceased at the accident, was suddenly there with me. And, and it was very physical. She could touch me. She was crying. In fact, she was the one telling me, you can't stay here. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. And it was this um, very poignant uh, goodbye. And I, I had to make a choice, um, knowing that I was looking at the woman I, I loved more than life, and yet I had that little boy crying in the backseat of that car, and, and I, I had to make a choice, and I chose to come back. Now, as soon as I had the conscious thought, um, I'm going back, boom, there I was, and yet what I experienced was leaving that, that bubble, if you will, and um, found myself wandering through the hospital. And that was a very, very interesting experience, because as I wandered through the hospital, I was encountering the doctors, the nurses, the patients, the families, I mean... Everything from a hustle, bustle, um, you know, ER trauma unit. And yet everyone I saw, I, I knew them absolutely perfectly. I mean, they were strangers in this realm, but I knew everything about them. I knew their love. I knew their hate. I knew their joy. I knew their pain. I knew their motivations for every decision they had ever made and why. And, and, and I knew their hearts. I knew them to the very core. And I, I had this overwhelming love for them. Um, overwhelming, unconditional love. Everyone from the heroin addict to the Relief Society grandmother, I, I wanted to embrace them. I wanted to hold them. I, wanted, I, I felt very much connected. And in fact, it felt as if they were a part of me and I was a part of them. I mean, we were literally one. And, and I, I felt that very real connection with no judgment. And that's the interesting thing is judgment went away. I had nothing but unconditional love, and, and I even had verse from my upbringing. You know, I mean, what, what came to mind as I was experiencing this was the, the famous biblical phrase that said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, and yet it, 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 it hit on a much deeper chord. It was beyond, oh, it's nice to be nice to people who are struggling. It, it was literally, they are me. We are one. It's as if the master knew this connection that I was experiencing, and I trust he most certainly did, that, that we literally are connected, that, that anything we do for anyone, we're literally doing it to each other because of our profound connection. Wow, that that seems really profound, and I and I want to go back to and you you talk about this choice to to stay with your wife or to to go back into mortality. I mean, looking back on it, is from your perspective, is it an absolute at that moment? It was your choice. I mean, you could have chose either way. 
You know, it, yes. I mean, there's always choice. That's what I knew. I mean, in that in that poignant moment, I knew that I could choose, but it did not feel like a choice. I mean, it's as if my my higher knowing. It's a it's, it's a bit. It, it was as if everything about me knew I was to come back. Um, it was not my time, so to speak. And uh, whether I had made a different choice and decided, you know, I'm going to stay here in this beautiful light. Um, who knows what would have happened, but it felt like I always had a choice, but the greater choice and the overwhelming choice was to come back almost as if I had to. It, it was not meant for me to stay. It was not my time. What, what happens from there? Well, I, uh, I wander through the hospital. You know, I'm encountering these people. I finally encounter a man laying on a bed that I didn't feel anything from, which was odd given <clears throat> everything I was feeling from, from all these people and souls around me. And so I stepped closer to realize I was actually looking at myself. That was me. That was my body. And um, I had a profound moment there. You know, it, it was a moment of sadness, and yet there was a moment of um, of enlightenment. As I, as I looked at my body, I knew that, well, I was told. I mean, and when I say told, not by words, it was just this knowledge was flowing through me. But what I knew is that that was the temple, that my body literally was the temple, and that I was to enter in it. And to en by entering in it, I would receive a gift or an endowment which would teach me everything I deserved to know, to go home, you know, and I had just had a, a glimpse of, of what that felt like to, to, to be gone, but there was also a great sense of sadness in that the body was so broken, it was so beat up, and, um, and I won't expound on that, but I, I could lecture for three hours based on the insights I had in the 10 seconds standing above my body before I entered it, and I had flashbacks of my own birth, you know, my own baptism, um, you know, washing and anointings that had taken place in my religious practices. I mean, I had all these things flooding through me that we may or may not have time to cover, but eventually I, again, made the choice, and again, as soon as I made the conscious thought, I'm going to get back in the body, Boom, I was back in the body. And, uh, and then all the pain and guilt and grief and trauma and everything returned. I spent, uh, I spent almost six months in the hospital. I had 18 surgeries as they tried to patch me back together. Um, during many of those months, I was three months in ICU. I, I, I seemed to have one foot in this realm and one foot in the other realm. I had continued conversations with my deceased wife about very interesting things, everything from details on the funeral and what she wanted to, you know, who was to receive certain heirlooms or personal items that she had. Um, she let me know she wanted to be buried with Griffin, our, our toddler boy, in her arms in the same coffin. Interesting, interesting conversations. Uh, the most profound thing that happened to me was actually at the end of my hospital stay. And um, I was finally in... Rehab. I'd been through ICU, through surgical recovery, and through every aspect of the surgeries. I was actually a few weeks from coming home, and I fell into a deep sleep. And in that sleep, I had that same sensation of rising above and fitting that light. But this time, I didn't seem to be surrounded by a bubble. I was free to move and run and uh, 
And that was my first elation as I was running, and I could feel what that felt like. Now, having both legs crushed, I knew I was going to be crippled. I was in a wheelchair for some time after the accident. I've now been fitted with a prosthetic limb, and I I walk or limp, (laughs) but I do get around. But at this time, after having laid in the hospital all those months, and here I was in this dream running, but I could feel it in such a super physical way. I could feel everything under my feet, and I was just elated to be in the in, in a body, it felt like a body. Again, it was so physical. And yet I knew I was spiritual. I knew I had left the body. And I was running about, and, and I had been a Division One athlete, and now I knew I was going to be crippled, but I was just so joyful in, in, in being free to, to literally enjoy my my mobility. And as I was doing that, I, I noticed a corridor, and I knew intuitively I was to go down the corridor. Now, as I was doing this, the, the feeling came over me that I'm only here for a moment again. I don't get to stay. But I went down the corridor, and at the end of the corridor was a crib. And so I rushed to the crib and looked in, and there was my little toddler, Griffin, um, sleeping as peacefully as could be. And, of course, I swept him up, and I held him in my arms. And, and again, I was struck by how physical it felt. He was solid against me. I could, I could feel his rib cage expanding with breath. I could feel his breath on my neck. I could feel the heat of his body. I could feel his soft head on my face. And I, I was just marveling. And again, I had the question, how can this be so physical if I'm in spirit? And as soon as I had the question, it's like the answer was just there. It would come. In fact, what, what I experienced is as I held him thinking, how can this be? How can he be so physical? The answer came that all spirit is matter only more refined. And I realized, oh, I'm just at a, all spirit is matter. It is matter. It is physical. It is solid. It is feeling. It is all of those things that we experience in this realm. But it was at a higher vibration, at a much more um, sensory way. In other words, I was experiencing things more physical in spirit than I ever do in in the body. But as I held my little boy weeping um, and just marveling that I actually got to say goodbye and, and spend a moment with him, I felt someone come up behind me, and what I felt was so powerful and so cosmic and so wise and so overwhelming. It actually startled me. I I didn't dare turn around, but I felt this being come up. And as they came close, in all the overwhelming, cosmic, powerful, all-knowingness, I also felt how absolutely personal and absolutely loving um, this being was. And as I held my little boy... I felt those divine arms wrap around and hold me. And wow. yeah, at, at that point, as, as I felt that embrace, um, it's as if we all just melded into one. And then as, it was like a, an expansion, like all of a sudden, uh, like, like, a, like a firework went off, you know, like boom. And all of a sudden I felt part of the entire universe of all that everything was and, and, and this knowledge and this truth and this understanding just began to flow through me in so many ways. I mean, I saw my whole life. I saw everything that had happened. I saw my childhood. I saw my mistakes, which I learned were not mistakes. Um, I even saw the things I did wrong and I knew they were wrong and I did them anyway. And yet in those loving arms, all I was getting was look how much we love you. Look how much we've honored you. You are only there to learn and look at the beautiful, beautiful circumstances that you have created to teach your soul what you wanted to get as you as you went to earth. And and that's that was a shift. I, I had gone those many months thinking, wow, God did this to me. I'm being tested. He's proving me to make sure I'm good enough or 
or whatever, and yet in this realm, in those arms, I knew that they loved me perfectly, and they knew me perfectly. There was nothing to prove. The only thing I had to prove was to myself. I was the one that did not know, and yet I had this glimpse of my absolute connectedness to, to eternity, to God, to all of it. And, and in the same love I was holding my perfect little toddler son, I felt that I was being held by our divine creator, knowing that, and it took me years to even say this, in fact, I didn't, and it's still difficult at times, but I knew that I was perfect, that I was divine, and, and therefore, if I was, we all are. And, um, and that was a huge, huge shift, and I, again, learned about choice, um, because I was given a choice, and what I was told, and it was communicated not through word again, it was just through this flowing knowledge, was that I could be a victim my whole life, and I could feel as if my family had been ripped away from me, or I could beat myself up feeling responsible because I was driving the car, or in that sacred place, and in that moment, I could actually choose to give my son back to him, and therefore exercise my will in this scenario. Even though the accident had happened, I knew my, my son was gone, but unconditional love gave me the opportunity to, to exercise my agency and say I will freely give him and therefore he will not be taken away I'm exercising my will in it and in all that love and light and beauty I was able to kiss my little boy and and uh, and give him back yeah that's that's profound in in the, my first thought that comes to mind is that so many people lose a loved one and never have the chance to say any kind of goodbye and here here God provides you with an opportunity to do just that. I, I have to believe that that had to be a huge part of the healing process going forward. It, it was. I mean, I had a whole different perspective because I, I came back into the pain in the hospital bed and, and and you know, recreating a life, but I had a different perspective that everything was a choice and that I could choose to be a victim or I could choose to create something far different from that. And it was still difficult. I mean, and, and I hesitated to share this stuff, Bill, because I thought, how many people do lose loved ones? And they never get to say goodbye. And see, my own son went through that, my little seven-year-old son. And I was having these beautiful, you know, soul-expanding experiences. And even as a teenager, he came to me and said, I've begged God for 12 years to feel something, and I felt nothing. What, you know, does he not care about me? And, and, and actually, he, he said, either you're making this up, or maybe you were deceived and you were on a lot of morphine and it never happened. Or God doesn't care about me because I begged to feel something, to see anything, to see mom. And he said, nothing's ever happened. So, you know, that shut me down quite a bit, too, thinking, well, how dare I share these sacred things? Not only because they're sacred to me, but gosh, how hurtful is it for those who deserve the experiences and don't have them? Right. And I, and I think along those lines that each of us kind of have to come to terms with each of our experiences are different. We, we receive different experiences for different reasons and, and we just aren't going to be able to grasp at that here in the, in the here and now. No, it's interesting. In fact, I, it, it drove me to my knees. My son had this conversation to me when he was 19 years old. He said, I've begged for 12 years. And, and it, I mean, as a father, it just broke my heart. I'm like, what am I going to do? Cause he's sitting here telling me, I've, I, I don't believe. I, I think you're crazy. <laughs> you know, it's never happened. Right. And I begged, you know, I, I, I'm a guy that prays. And here I was begging God to, to I, I would give all my experiences away for my son to feel one thing, something, please. And, and yet that whisper came back to me. And I call it the whisper, the spirit, that voice. It's that voice that speaks to my heart. And it was interesting what it said, because I was told, <laughs> how dare you judge his experience? 
simply because it's different than yours. He's having his perfect experience. He's learning what he came here to learn. And just because it doesn't look the same way yours does, judge not that you be not judged. And, uh, and that was not the answer I expected. But I realized that unconditional love will hold the context for us to have our experience, and they don't always look the same. Right, right. I, uh, when, when you were in this spiritual realm and you saw yourself in the hospital and, and were trying to figure out why you didn't feel something about this person and finally recognized it was you, and I'm going to ask a strange question, but then I, I've got a follow-up comment, which is why I'm asking it, which is when, when this happened, your physical body, had it, had it essentially, were you deceased or was it, was was your body still heart functioning, lungs functioning at that time? You know, I I don't know, and that's that's the interesting thing. I I was standing outside the body. That I know. Um, my spirit had removed itself from the trauma. I was not clinically pronounced dead. You know, I asked the doctors that. Um, I, I've actually become good friends with my trauma doc, <laughs> and he uh, he said we've never seen anyone with your injuries alive, let alone survive them. But he seemed to indicate that my heart was still beating. Um, yeah. So you know, I I can't answer that in a clinical way. In in an emotional way, I know I was standing outside the body, and yet there the body was, and I had not been clinically pronounced dead. Yeah, and the reason I ask that, you mentioned a minute ago that, that skeptics will say that it's just your brain firing as a last resort mechanism to try and, try and live. And yet, as I've studied into near death experiences, and I have a wife, I have to, I have to mention her because she's gonna absolutely, she doesn't listen to any of my interviews, but she said she's gonna listen to this one because she is, uh, really has a deep interest of near death experiences and she's, she's read four or five different books and just enjoys listening to the experiences. They help build her faith. And, one of the things that I've I've noticed from talking to her and reading some books myself is that while these skeptics want to claim it's a last resort of the brain firing, the truth is that many dear death experiences have occurred to people who have not died. That that there's been people who have simply been going into surgery and have you know been under anesthesia, but their body is perfectly functioning, and yet they've had these kinds of experiences. I, I think. I guess I'm pointing back to you, but we have to attribute it to something more than just the brain making some last-ditch effort to save itself. Right, right. And I've, I've got to spend time with some very interesting people. Um, Eben Alexander, who wrote Proof of Heaven, he's a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. And not to ruin the story or the book, it's a fantastic book, and he's an interesting fellow. Um, he was... A non-believer, he knew the brain just shut down. He knew that all these hallucinations were a function of uh, lack of oxygen to the brain. I mean, and as he was having his experience, he even thought, well, this must be what's happening to me. But he, uh, and I'll paraphrase this briefly, he, he was met on the other side. And this is an interesting universal um, experience in many, many, many near-death experiences. He was met by a woman. And this woman came and he loved her. He never met her, didn't know who she was. And she showed him around those other realms and taught him a great deal and then sent him back. And about five months after that um, experience, as he miraculously healed, he was never meant to heal from this, but he was told in those realms that if he came back, he would heal. Um, in, in a strange turn of events, he found out that he had a biological sister. He'd been given up for adoption when he was young. And his parents, who had been teenagers at the time, continued a relationship and became married, and they had additional children. And and after the near-death experience, he was able to hunt down his birth parents, found out he had siblings, 
And they said, oh, we just wish you could have contacted us sooner. Your sister, that would have been your next closest in age, died last year of cancer. And they produced the picture. And lo and behold, it's the woman that met him on the other side and showed him all around that he had this strange connection to. And so he is a huge component of there's no way my brain could have made that up and hallucinated it because it had no knowledge of it. And yet we're connected spiritually in a way that even his biological sister, who he who had no knowledge of and had never met, was the one that met him and showed him around. And that's the universal thing that often happens is deceased loved ones are almost uh, universally a part of the near-death experience or ancestors show up for so many in any kind of these um, scenarios. Right. Um, in regards to these kind of commonalities that we find in near-death experiences, obviously you're a Latter-day Saint, I'm a Latter-day Saint. There's certainly things that, that as I've read near-death experiences, build my faith in that, that framework. But it's not just Latter-day Saints having near-death experiences. What, From your experience talking to other people, what are some of the commonalities that I think we could all pull from as we, as we try to better understand this, this, uh, these experiences? Yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily an expert, but I have run in these circles a great deal. I've heard a lot of stories. I have read a lot of books at this point. Um, the two commonalities that, that are universal in, in what I have found are this feeling of unconditional love, this overwhelming love, and this feeling of, of what I call home. It's like, gosh, I've been here. I know this place. I belong here. That's, that's one commonality. The second is, is the one I already mentioned, and that's deceased ancestors or deceased loved ones coming to meet them, showing them around, explaining things. And uh, even in my own, gosh, first it was my deceased wife that was very fresh. We'd kind of passed through together, but we even got to have a conversation about me coming back. And I continue to have interactions with her, by the way. I have remarried. We've adopted additional children. And she's still very much a part of our life, which sounds really odd. Even even my new um, wife, who never knew my first wife in life, has had dreams and spiritual experiences with her um, that are uncanny. Wow. Yeah, the, see, that's, that's to me is is kind of the, the kicker in that, we talk about near-death experience, and again, going back to those who are skeptical, if, if these were just the brain firing as a last resort, I would expect to see my parents who are living as much as I would see those who are deceased. And yet, to a T, as I read the stories of those who have had these experiences, it's always somebody who's passed on. It's not, it's not the living, you know, brother or the living father who, who lives three blocks away and is doing fine. Um, I just think that we've got to take a deeper look at these things and recognize there's more to this than, than simply trying to explain it away with a wave of the hand. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Raymond Moody has become a good friend of mine as well. He uh, wrote the foreword to my first book and, and he's the same way. The, the, they're scientists. I mean, they want to prove this and I don't know that you can ever prove it. I, I, I've been very open with them, with Eben and Raymond. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that you can ever prove it, but yeah, there's an un canniness to the um, serendipity of what goes on that certainly points to proof or at least circumstantial evidence that there is far more. Now, from my perspective, I know there is. I, I you know, I can't question what I experienced. I mean, um, I, I even had a conversation with, with my trauma doc just before my first book came out, and I said, you know, what if, what if it was a hallucination? What if it was, you know, what if, what if I'm releasing this book? And, and, uh, his answer was interesting. He says, well, what was, what, what, what did it do for you? What did you experience? And I said, what I experienced was so real and so profound that it changed my life forever. And he said, then release the book because 
you know, people deserve to know that. And I actually went back to the scene of the accident. I, I had no intention of ever writing a book, by the way, or being an author. Or I had moved on in my life, and and uh, a publisher actually approached me, um, and and I still was very reluctant. I went I went back to the scene of the accident, which is mile marker eighty outside of Parowan, down in southern Utah, and. I asked, am I really supposed to do this? I mean, with the publisher coming forward and all these things happening, is this what I'm meant to do? And I, I had that voice that speaks to my heart, and the answer was yes. And yet, I could, whenever that voice speaks, I can almost quote what I was told, but I was told, share your experience, and if you do, people will heal, and they'll find their own answers to whatever they're dealing with in their lives. And so, you know, in doing that, it, it's been very, very interesting. It was, number one, very healing for me to actually write it down. And at the time, I thought, well, at least my kids will know what I experienced. It'll be in writing. Um, my mom might buy a book. But, uh, boy, the book um, the book took off. It's been in the top ten in the category on Amazon now for almost two years. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's the cards and the letters and the notes and the emails that come in from everything from, from prison inmates to teenagers who are saying, I found my answer. I, your, your book changed my life. And I sit there, you know, wiping tears reading these uh, things saying, that's the one. That's the one I was meant to write the book for. And there is divine order and... Um, and, and people are, are healing, including myself. And so that, uh, that little whisper has proved out to be um, very profound. Awesome. I, I do want to talk about the, the book or books briefly. The one here, I Knew Their Hearts, The Amazing True Story of Jeff Olson's Journey Beyond the Veil to Learn the Silent Language of the Heart. And you said books, though. So what's the other book that you've written? The second book just came out um, a few months ago. It's called Beyond Mile Marker 80. And it's... it's um, it's about picking up the pieces. I mean, the first book is, is about my life and the accident and the near-death experience and, and all that happened and that I learned there. But the second book is, is kind of the life experience. Okay, now, now that, I've, I've got to put on my pants and learn to walk and go to work, you know, and raise a child on my own. And, and, and then it's about rebuilding a life and, uh, and meeting, um, a woman by, 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 again, profound serendipitous circumstances i wasn't dating i wasn't looking but i i i fell in love again and remarried we adopted uh two boys which once again you just you see miracles every day and and, and my life has been full of these strange miracles and yet all of our lives are the difference is i came from a place having had the experience that i recognized him i recognized everything as a miracle even if it's the sunrise but uh but the, the second book is about picking up all the pieces and putting it back together and, and literally choosing joy after traumatic loss. Wow. I will, I will share a link to, to both books with this episode so that people can uh, check out your story in, in more depth. I want to finish with kind of a last question, which, which kind of plays along the LDS faith. So you have this near-death experience. You're a Latter-day Saint. Uh, in what in what ways has this experience impacted your faith, and and how has it changed your life? Wow, um, great great question, Bill. And it and it's, it is it has expanded my faith tremendously. In fact, I I I have found that that what was faith and hope has literally transformed into absolute trust, absolute trust, and uh, what I experienced in those realms and the love that I encountered. And one of the interesting things for me was the lack of judgment I experienced. There was no judgment there. 
only pure, unconditional love. And that, you know, that that's something I had to come to terms with as I came back and thought, well, gosh, you know, and, and granted, I, I suppose I didn't go through a final judgment or anything else. But but the love I felt was so absolutely overwhelming that it completely shifted my relationship with uh, with my heavenly father in a way that I absolutely trust. I, I experienced his love in many ways. I symbolically partook of the tree of life and and realized something so beautiful and beyond and and in that experience when i stood in those arms and some of the things that felt so foreign and yet i have found to be so true was that i had always existed that i was absolutely eternal that i was part of that all of it and um you know that falls right along lines with our theology you know the the that we 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 were not created we have always existed intelligence has always been and uh and also, you know, looking at my body and, 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 and playing the scenario of the temple and, and entering the temple. But I had profound insights to the symbols of, of, our, of our temple endowment and, and what that meant to me. And it, it, it was an interesting um, process because I came back and, gosh, I, I looked into Eastern philosophy. I looked into energy work and Reiki. I, I, I started to and still do practice with Native American uh, medicine men and, and, and all of these things. Just, just number one, kind of looking to put all the pieces together, but number two, realizing that we are so connected. We have far more in common as, as children of our heavenly parents than we will ever have separate by race, religion, nationality. And, and there's an overwhelming love that I experienced where by letting go of judgment and literally embracing love and embracing a stranger as literally my brother, um, the gospel now means something far more profound and meaningful to me than who's right and who's wrong and who's going to make it and who isn't. Right, right. We're all trying to make sense of the the same experience of mortality. <clears throat> and, uh, and that leads us all maybe to approach things in different ways. But like you say, there's so much more in common. We are talking today with Jeff Olson, uh, author of uh, I Knew Their Hearts, the amazing true story of Jeff Olson's journey beyond the veil to learn the silent language of the heart. And Jeff, as you also mentioned, another book, Beyond Mile Marker 80, uh, Choosing Joy After Tragic Loss. I, I hope, Jeff, if anything, I... I know listeners will have an interest in near-death experiences. It just is an interesting topic in and of itself. But my bigger hope in having you on is that my listenership, being Latter-day Saints who who themselves are just trying to hold on to faith at times, that that you will have given them reason to do so. And and I listened to your story, and, and I hope that uh, listeners will be profoundly touched. I was deeply touched, and I, I'm pretty sure that after my wife listens to this that she's probably going to have two more books on the shelf. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you today, Jeff, and, and your story is just is going to mean a lot to a whole lot of people. Oh, thank you, Bill. I, I appreciate you uh, having me on, and I'm honored to spend time with you this morning, so thank you. No problem. God bless you. You too. Thank you. the dead to life. He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. 
He's the one who walked on water. Then he brought them safe to shore. And whenever you may need him, he's the one you're looking for. So let him in, and he will take away your pain. When you feel his love, you'll never be the same. Come on to Christ. Come on. By His grace, be made holy again. He's calling your name. He's waiting for you with arms open wide. Come unto Holy again.